Welcome to One Quick Point, the strategy-focused podcast focused on the one key element communications and marketing professionals can use to be the critical link to their success. I'm your host, James Walker. Let's jump in. So today's podcast features an amazing guest, Chris Van Bergen. Now, Chris and I have known each other for a few years now, and with each conversation, I just get deeper and deeper into what is an amazing pool of knowledge around CSR, sustainability, and social impact. And the reason for this is not only Chris's deep passion, but his actual real-world experience doing this. He's the COO and CFO of Nest, a nonprofit that's focused on building a new handworker economy to increase workforce inclusivity, to improve women's well-being beyond factories, and to preserve important cultural traditions around the world. Now, this around the world part is not something that they're just saying. They have worked and continue to work in 90 plus countries around the world, working directly with people building artisan businesses. And I say this with so much passion of just, this is the real deal because I've worked in-house at some of the, the big uh, nonprofit organizations then also working uh, for them you know as an agency partner and many of them feel big and the impact is there but it's hard to kind of touch it nest it may not be the biggest nonprofit, but they're right there creating impact literally in markets in the countries in the workers homes so i'm excited to bring chris and share some of his knowledge and then also to start to dig into a little bit where the real impact is in a year when we've been talking about impact quite a bit all right. Well, thank you for joining us today, Chris. This conversation, honestly, feels like it was years in the making. So I'm glad we're here and glad you're able to join us on One Quick Point. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. Let's, let's, let's dive in. All right. So I know your roots run deep in this space. Can you provide a quick definition of CSR for those of us who maybe don't work in CSR on a day-in, day-out basis? Sure thing. And it's, and granted, it, it's a, it's a broad topic. So it, it's also a little confusing for me, I think, well, CSR firstly is corporate social responsibility. And that really takes a lot of different forms. Uh, it's, if you had to distill it down, I would say it's how a corporation or a brand or a company really thinks about the impact that they're having, whether that's social impact, whether that's environmental impact. Um, it can be through uh, sustainable sourcing practices, responsible sourcing. So kind of more on the supply chain side of things, how the products are getting made, um, how they're getting distributed. It can also be how the company is using philanthropy, how they're, they're targeting key issues within society and using proceeds from the, the, their own business to, to drive change in that area, uh, essentially acting almost like a grant making organization. Also leveraging employees, uh, you know, the, the expertise and skills, uh, the volunteerism of their employees, again, to, to help the world make a, you know, help make the world a better place. I know that sounds sort of cheesy, but, um, but that's really what's happening. Uh, and it's a, it's a rapidly changing landscape. Um, it's one that a lot of people are, are talking about, thinking about adding business strategy to. So it's, uh, it's certainly a fun place to work. Definitely. Now, one thing that you mentioned, and you've started to kind of go down this road a little bit, is that it can include everything from grants or maybe employee volunteer employee volunteerism down to things like ESG. So that's when you think about that space, it's really broad. So how do you see the space maybe evolving 
you know, in a year like 2020, do you see companies rethinking their priorities in terms of CSR? Are they thinking through how they engage partners differently? What what trends are emerging? Sure. Uh, yeah, it's it, as I indicated, it is definitely rapidly changing. Um, frankly, it was changing before uh, the pandemic hit and people really had to kind of pump the brakes and, and think about their their activities as a, as a business and, and their employees. Um, and you know, at Nest, we we do a lot of different things, sort of in the in the CRSR space. So I have the good fortune of of interfacing with a lot of brands who are working through key issues. And on the on the responsible sourcing side, you see brands just knowing that they take they need to take increased responsibility further down the supply chain. And we can we can get to that in a bit. But their customers are asking for it. They're really thinking about what their supply chain looks like, how they can be stronger partners to the people that are producing the products for them, how they can really be thinking about the well-being of the workers that are working in those factories or wherever the, the product is being made. Employee engagement on the on the other side of the of the coin is is rapidly growing and the employees are looking for it. Employees um, want to work for a company that has volunteering as a kind of a core piece of its mission. People want to be working for purpose-driven brands, whatever that looks like, however they demonstrate that, but, but authentically, let's let's be real. Um, and consumers are looking for purpose-driven brands. All that is is has been on the rise for a while, and and in many ways, it feels like 2020 and the world we're living in right now is is frankly accelerating a lot of those those types of conversations. So, do you feel like we're at an okay place with understanding? are most people understanding the value of CSR? Because it felt like in the last five years, there was still a heavy amount of education Mm -hmm. and and almost value positioning that needed to happen to show, be it diversity investments or thinking about things like ESG and people trying to map to the UN sustainability goals or thinking about GRI. People were just trying to figure out how do I show that this, one, we are creating impact, and two, that that impact is valuable to the company. From a PR standpoint, our position has always been that in many ways, the things that companies do from a CSR standpoint to be a responsible organization are some of the very things they give you a license to operate. Those are the things that allow your stakeholders to align with the fact that your business has a good purpose and they're willing to support that purpose as you build your business. Are you seeing that that education still needs to take place? Is it different from the marketing standpoint? Just want to get a sense of that from somebody who's in that world every day. Sure. Um, I definitely, well, look, there have been companies that have been purpose-driven from the get-go, you know, for the last 30 plus years, 100 plus years, some of them. Um, but by and large, historically speaking, CSR kind of felt a little fluffy. There, was, there, weren't, there wasn't hard business metrics behind it. Um, people didn't weren't really able to make the argument that it's better for the bottom line of the company. That conversation is rapidly changing. Um, and the conversation around employee retention and employee engagement is rapidly changing. And there are a couple of reasons for that. From a business metrics standpoint, a lot of businesses have been looking at, okay, CSR isn't just something that we're doing because it's the right thing to do. It is a way that we can either increase revenues, capture market share from competitors, uh, speak to a customer base that maybe wasn't listening to us before, um, or on the other side, cut costs, right? So make an upfront capital investment of say, 
solar panels on all of our warehousing and all of our factories and everything else. And we're going to make that upfront, upfront capital investment. But thinking about corporate finance over the long term, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to dramatically reduce the amount we're going to be spending on that, or we're going to reduce water usage in our dye processing for jeans or something like that. Right. And you're using a lot less resources, even though you might have a capital investment up front, you need to have R and D up front to figure out that innovation. But once you do, you, you are able to really reduce the amount of resources that you're spending, energy, water, all that sort of good stuff. So that conversation is certainly taking place. I think, I think from a supply chain transparency perspective, uh, there's certainly been many studies that show it's better to be responsible up front to mitigate risks that are in your supply chain, acknowledge what those risks are, than have to pay for it on the back end with some crisis or uh, something that you, you essentially need to clean up after the fact if, if you weren't being responsible. Right, right. You know, and then on the employee retention and engagement side, I mean, think about the the next generation that's entering into the workforce or the next generation that's entering into uh, the, the customer base, right? So this generation that is coming in, that is getting more disposable income, that is coming to be hired, they're asking these questions. You company, you say you're doing this thing, show me what you're actually doing and, and how you're making a difference or how you're you know, reducing negative impacts of, of your, your production, say, or um, you know, of your carbon footprint, that kind of thing. So that's definitely been a driving force as well. The, the energy and the attention that's coming in from, you know, I'll say the millennials, but even beyond that, right? Um, it, it's really a driving factor and something that a lot of brands, I feel a lot of brands are, are, are actively talking about. It's so uh, we, we've gotten to the, the magical M word. So we talk millennials <laughs> here. Um, I have many friends, former, you know, people I went to college with that I see they're kind of moving into this slow fashion space mm. uh, similar to you know what people the kind of slow food movement almost thinking about how that is healthier for the planet and healthier for them they're thinking about their fashion consumption and which retailers they engage with some are completely sworn it off and are figuring out ways to do exchanges or other types of things so that there's something more uh, sustainable about what they wear and how they they show their their personality through their fashion and it, it gets to this whole idea of ethics and people are thinking about how they can maybe, from a fashion standpoint, encourage and change things. And thinking, people are starting to talk about more sustainable fashion. Now, this is you know connected on the other end of the, sale, the scale almost to ethical manufacturing, mm-hmm. which I know you know well. So can you dig into that a little bit and talk through maybe some of the the historical moments that maybe weren't labeled as, you know, the journey towards ethical manufacturing, but definitely helped us get to this idea of where we're thinking about the fact that the way we produce and the way we consume might need to be different. Sure. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I love talking about this stuff. I could talk with you all day, James. Um, <laughs> yeah. Let's see where to start. I think the slow, the slow fashion movement um, for sure is something that we talk about a lot. Um, and I think there's a reason why it's following the slow food movement. Um, slow food first developed, organic produce first developed, you know, because it's something that you're putting into your body. And so that's really going to be the first place that as a consumer, you're going to start making decisions and choices about your, your, your purchasing behavior. 
right after that, if you think about like the parameter of need, the very base, you have food and shelter. And then the very next one up is clothing, um, essentially. And so, you know, it's something that's, that's on your body. It's close to you. Um, it's something that is also a reflection of who you are potentially, um, you know, the branding, the look, what it's made of. Um, these are things that, that people are certainly actively thinking about and talking about. Now, from an ethical manufacturing perspective and kind of a, the general thinking around, I'll just say responsible sourcing, I think is a good way to bucket all of that. Um, we've been having conversations for, for many years about it, but there certainly are key moments in time where it felt like there was a, there, there was a crisis of some kind. And we, as, as consumers, as industry, as government, needed to kind of take a step back and, and take a really hard look at things. When you think about the, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory uh, fire, which was you know, in, in New York City around the turn of the century, a lot of people um, died in that, in that fire uh, mm -hmm. because there was no fire regulation or safety regulations for factory production at that time. And as a result of that incident, that was really the first time that regulation started coming into, into a conversation. It's like, oh, yeah, we, you know, we should make sure that, that people can actually safely exit a building if it's on fire, right? I mean, this is um, – and so, so that was, I would say, one of the – in my head, in, in my kind of timeline, I'm sure you could ask anybody who thinks about CSR and they'll have their own timeline. But for me, that was kind of the, the first spark of it. Um, obviously, there have been – many pervasive issues along the way. Uh, some of them have been well documented, but in terms of modern day thinking around responsible sourcing, for me, it really, it was mid nineties, honestly. Um, it was the, the life magazine article around child labor in soccer balls um, in, um, in Pakistan and, you know, big splashy feature article um, highlighting kids that are stitching soccer balls, which then make their way into the homes of people in, in the U S and in Europe. And it was 96. I think that article came out and you think about, I think it was 94, the U S had the world cup, right? So soccer kind of exploded as a youth sport. People who are reading that magazine very well might have children who are playing that sport and you kind of connecting the dots there. And, um, that really, for me kind of became the next sort of outcry that, brands who aren't who don't own the production right let's be clear about that the brands producing say those soccer balls or shoes or apparel they generally don't own their supply chain it's not vertically integrated as, as we would say they're you know they're contracting to somebody else and historically speaking the brands had no responsibility you know their responsibility basically ended and it was like no it's that's not a, that's not on us that's on on those guys over there they need to, they need to worry about that. We don't, as a brand, don't need to worry about that. And it was that moment in the mid nineties <clears throat> that I think really shifted the narrative there. And there were some companies that really stepped up in a big way. Nike really stepped up. They said, you know what, you know, I know that's what we, you know, before we said, it's not really our problem. It's a, you know, child labor is a systemic issue, whatever, you know, that we, we can't really solve. They, they changed their policy and they said, no, we're going we're gonna to become much stricter about our policies. Nobody under the age of 18 can be employed making our products. Um, they're going to join the, the, the Fair Labor Association, the FLA. They're going to become much more proactive in terms of auditing and, and all of that sort of stuff. Now, technically speaking, I, I don't think they actually had legal responsibility. Uh, I really don't mm. uh, from a, like a court ruling perspective. 
but they knew that there, I mean, there was a massive outcry uh, from the customer base um, saying it's like, this isn't right. You know, boycotts at university campuses, this kind of stuff. It's like not, not what you want to see as a, as a company who's building your reputation on, you know, solid performance of athletic um, equipment and things like that. And in many ways, I think they really handled it right. You know, they, they were one of the first ones to step up in a big way and say, you know what, we actually have to take more ownership of it. Um, so that was certainly one big moment. I think for me, the next one, um, which, which people may remember is, uh, the factory collapse, uh, the Rana Plaza factory collapse in Bangladesh. Right. Um, that was what, maybe seven years ago or so at this point, something like that, eight years, a huge tragedy, you know, thousands of people lost their lives, um, Many more were injured, and that, that was it. Was a truly unfortunate moment in many ways, and but a huge wake up call for the industry because there was a system in place. You know, there, there were there were auditing systems in place, there were standards in place, and that that factory tragedy still happened. And so, brands and industry really needed to start asking themselves why. Like, why did this happen? What were the root causes to this? How can we get more involved? How do we take more ownership um, if things aren't going well? You know, if there's an audit happening and yet, you know, on, on one day and then the next day the factory collapses and over a thousand people die, it's like, well, clearly the system breaks down. And so, you know, industry got together. There were a number of collaborative efforts, um, two big ones. One was called the Accord and the other was called the Alliance, where brands got together and they really, um, they really thought through what a more comprehensive, robust uh, protocol should be when it came to looking at. Uh, factories in Bangladesh and making them safer and making sure that worker well-being came into play, making sure that unions were were starting to be recognized, making sure that they could try and eliminate as many of those root causes as possible. Um, and so for me, that was that was certainly the next big moment. And I think in many ways, right now we're we're I would say maybe I don't want to be too dramatic, but we're kind of in the midst of 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 a moment right now. I think, you know, COVID-19 is really exposing weaknesses. Um, in the supply chain and in the process and the the power dynamics between you know the big brands headquartered in the U.S. or in Europe or you know in in other other countries and then the places where often their products are being produced those are emerging economies developing developing economies places where the workforce has very little in the way of a social safety net um, and the brands I'm talking to right now frankly really are thinking about that. They're thinking about the fact that those workers, they're not technically working for that brand, but they're producing the product for that brand. Mm -hmm. How much ownership should the brand have into their well-being? And what can they do to help provide greater opportunities for them to secure more of a social safety net so that if the wheels fall off the cart again, and, and everybody says that they probably will, you know, um, are those workers set up to be able to endure that? so that they can then come back and be more resilient in the supply chain. So, I mean, it's, it's, and, and granted, I just, you know, I highlighted maybe three or four moments in a, a very long history of mass manufacturing, but those are the ones that I, I am thinking about these days. Well, and, and some of those big moments I think are interesting because what follows it is once the news cycle hits it, if there's enough information for people to understand one, how, how much of an atrocity, the fact that it happens, you know, how much of a, a catastrophic event it was, but two, they also think about the fact that it didn't have to happen. It's, it's preventable. And then three, you have the consumer starting to think, okay, there's something that we can do here. And in the way that, you know, you say you vote with your dollar in a mm -hmm. sense, they're, they're starting to lean in and put some pressure. 
Now, where the, for the, the bigger events like the ones you've mentioned, we see that there's corrective action that the companies can take, and they're starting to think a little bit hard about how they can own more of the supply chain to protect against these things. Now, in events that are maybe aren't as big or as uh, negative in terms of impact, we're starting to see, and we've been seeing for a while, um, companies leaning more into that cause marketing space, mm-hmm. which I think came up from, from a nonprofit side as, oh, this is a net net benefit. This is good. But from you know an impact standpoint, how far did it really go? I think there are people starting to question that and potentially meaning that the marketing partnerships that people are looking at and the ways that they interact with the people that they're trying to support might be a little bit different. Are you seeing that there are different types of partnerships kind of emerging as we think through this impact piece and what we're really trying to accomplish? Sure. Great question. Um, great, great question. It's something that at Ness we talk about quite a bit in terms of uh, CRM, uh, you know, cause-related marketing efforts and opportunities that we pursue and with partners that we pursue them and what those opportunities really look like. Um, and I think, I mean, you haven't said it, but I think um, the the concern around greenwashing or woke washing these days um, definitely lays pretty heavy for a nonprofit organization that um, has a lot of brand partnerships. And I, I would say for the responsible on the responsible brand side, the ones that I feel like are doing it right are really thinking about that too. Um, when it comes to cause related marketing, the things that I think about and look for, um, whether it's within our organization or whether it's other opportunities is it's actually not that different than the the question that consumers are, or even employees are asking of those purpose driven brands. Just like, show me what you're actually doing. You say you're supporting, you know, 10% of the proceeds are going to go to X, Y, and Z. Well, what organization are you partnering with that's going to deliver the services that you say you're, you're, you know, you're working towards? Um, can you report out how much money has actually been raised and been delivered to that organization? Can you take it one step further? And can that organization report out social impacts from that kind of project? That's a lot of work for all the partners involved, but it is work that I think is really, really important um, so that those types of efforts can really rise above the noise um, and, and and really work to address issues in society, but do it in an authentic way um, and kind of combat the the skepticism that, that consumers are coming to some brands with because of past issues of greenwashing, things like that. Um, and also just frankly showing other brands and corporates how it can be done right. Take the extra time to really think through it. What is a brand do you want to stand for? Um, what do you think your customer or consumer wants to wants you to stand for? What, what social cause or environmental cause um, do you really want to be active in? And how can you then execute that? Look for those partners that are the service distribution mechanisms, essentially, to partner with you because you're not going to be able to do it as a brand. And and lay out the guidelines as far as what you're trying to accomplish um, and try and report it out as much as you can. Definitely. That's good guidance for sure. So from a brand perspective, if somebody's looking to specifically focus on sourcing and embrace responsible sourcing, what should they be thinking about? Because in some cases, you know, you tell people start with the why and think about that. 
maybe it's starting with the impact, but how would you advise somebody if they approach you? Because you've done this type of work with Nest. Sure. Uh, where a brand is trying to explore something and trying to figure out if there's a way to, if they can improve. Where do you start with them? Oftentimes we start by identifying who from the brand gets to have a seat at the table. Uh, and what I mean by that is the efforts that we see work extremely well are ones where there are cross-functional teams that are working together to solve those problems. Not that long ago, like the CSR folks, this is going to sound ridiculous, but the CSR folks were basically just like a bunch of hippies that were just like in a basement office talking to themselves and occasionally would like have the opportunity to address the rest of the the company and say, Hey, we really should be doing this. The company would say, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Well think about it. Okay. You got to go back to your office now. That's not the way it's working anymore. Thank goodness. (laughs) At least for the vast majority of, um, of, of firms. Um, there's either kind of a hybrid model where there's, there's the CSR team and they're, they're embedded up to a point. Um, in strategic decisions with the design team, production, merchandising is critical because uh, those are the, the the folks that really decide, okay, what kind of margin is being made on this product? How is it you know, sitting with the rest of the collection, for example? Um, responsible sourcing team, of course, quality assurance, um, logistics, all those folks need to come together to really figure out, okay, if we're going to be doing this in a different way, what needs to change? What do we need to do in order to 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 do it successfully? Uh, and it's not going to be easy. And there are going to be trade offs on every in in every corner, frankly. But if you have all those players at the table, you're going to be able to get consensus and buy in, so that it's going to become a successful endeavor. You're not going to then just have like the merchandisers and the responsible sourcing people just like fighting each other. They need to come together because you're, you're trying to solve a strategic issue. And so first and foremost, figuring out who, what the team makeup looks like, uh, then very critically, certainly, what issue are you trying to solve? What problem are you trying to solve? What social impact or environmental impact are you looking to get? Um, and, and, and kind of start there. Figure out what some easy wins might be. Acknowledge that this is not going to be an easy process. It's not going to be a quick win often. Um, and, but you got to figure it out. You got to be able to present that business case too, which as we indicated earlier, I mean, that's, that's something that's been changing. It's, it's getting the business case because that's when everyone starts paying even closer attention. I think uh, if you look at what Herman Miller did when they redesigned um, one of their, their famous office chairs, they brought in this organization called Cradle to Cradle, which is really the first, um, to, at least in my, my mind, the first organization that was really focusing on the way you design a product and the inputs that go into that product, doing that in such a way that you're, you're diminishing the amount that's going into a landfill at end of life so that everything can be upcycled or that, you know, there's, it's not just like you're not doing any harm, but there's actually almost like more of a positive benefit um, in the, in almost like a closed loop system essentially. And so what Herman Miller did, they worked very closely with cradle to cradle. They analyzed all the inputs into this chair. They got this cross-functional team put together. And for something like three years, this team worked these issues out and, you know, they had their struggles. They had to figure out, okay, it's going to cost us a little more to use this plastic component versus that plastic component. But the carbon footprint or the, you know, the gases released from production, all they, they looked at all of it. 
And then they launched the chair and the chair was just like incredibly successful uh, on the back end. Granted, I mean, we're talking about, you know, like a thousand dollar piece of office equipment, but um, you know, and so it's a niche market, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, I make no bones about that, but the way they went about doing that, I think is a perfect case in essentially in systems change, you know, how as a company you can do it. Um, that's a, that's, that's one, one case I, I think about quite a bit when it comes to this kind of stuff. And, a little bit of a tangent, um, you know, thinking back, of course, to the Stern days, but it really is that p- portion of your mind that you kind of have to allow to say that this is not, it, yes, this can be used in marketing and communications, but this is not necessarily created for that. It's created for impact, but it's also very much tied into how we do our business. It's how we operate. Mm-hmm. In some ways, this is an operations piece, especially when you start to dig into supply chain. And I do find it so uh, interesting when you come across many brands and companies where the CSR department is very much far away from what you would call the core business functions, but it's not. Right. Uh, that that's just you know the the way that I've started to think about how this all needs to be woven in. It's really about the operations piece, getting that right, creating an impact with that, and then net now from a, a marketing comp standpoint, you actually have the meat of the idea to work with. Because it's based in something. It's not something you created for the purpose of something else. That's the beautiful aspect of it, I think. That if you if you go through the process um, successfully, that there is so much of a story to tell to your customer. Um, whatever that process is, whether it's... Um, you know, creating more worker well-being or social impact at the worker level or mapping your supply chain even further down to the, you know, the end of road where the basket weaver is weaving in their house or whatever it is. You have a huge amount of content that, look, these days people are starved for content. They want to know and are starting to ask those questions because they're being a little bit more careful with their dollar. What kind of difference am I making with this purchase or what negative impact could I be having or supporting with this purchase? Right. Like everyone's starting to ask those questions. And uh, it's 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 critical that that the the marketing arm of a business is really dialed in uh, to what's happening, what interesting innovations are taking place. Um, You know, I talked about reducing the amount of wastewater um, in those genes. It's it's a really interesting story that can capture market share for customers that maybe didn't know that your brand was, was investing in that kind of way, for example. Um, so it's, it's absolutely, absolutely critical. And having the, having the marketing uh, component at the table, I should have mentioned it and I didn't, my apologies um, is, is really important as well. I maybe not like right at early days, but once the idea has been generated and there's progress being made and we're starting to talk about launch date, having that marketing voice there so that they can also ask the questions like, well, how, how are we demonstrating impact here? What, what metrics are we using to show success? Um, and then figuring out, okay, what story can I tell? Um, authentic story again to the, to the customer who, who, who might be interested in buying that product. For sure. Now we, we talked about this a little bit about how sometimes the, the function gets a bad rap inside the organization, for being a little bit on the softer side, so not the hardcore business piece, but it requires real business savvy to create world impact inside, you know, from the inside of a major organization, lots of layers. What challenges and opportunities do you see currently in the space? It could be, uh, you know, within your your function, thinking through some of that sourcing and ethical manufacturing, or it could be just broadly. Sure. Um, there, there, I, there are so many 
ways we can go here. Um, one of the challenges I think is that brands need to figure out how far down the supply chain they want to be responsible for. Um, mm-hmm. We're we're in a day and age now where it's not always easy work, but you can get the information all the way down the supply chain. And supply chains are very complicated. Even the even ones that are just like straight up one, you know, I have one factory and that's the only factory that makes my shirts, let's say. That the inputs going into that factory are also things that brands need to think about. Okay, do we need to, you know, the dyeing of the the fabric is taking place in this whole other place. Should we be responsible for that? Should we be responsible for the farmer who farmed the cotton or where it was spun or where the seeds for the cotton came from? I mean, so as a brand, I, I would say that that is a, it's, it's both an opportunity and a challenge because you can't eat the whole elephant. You need to figure out what you're focusing on as a brand, taking step by step to secure your supply chain in an appropriate way. So I think that's, that's something that I'm seeing a lot. I'm seeing a lot of brands um, really think about, I mean, for a while now, everyone's admitted, yeah, tier one, which is that like end factory that's making the finished product. We we get it. We need to have responsibility there. Beyond that, now they're talking about those other processes. And you know, in, in the Nest world, we we deal with home workers and small workshop production. That's why they're coming to us because they're like, oh, we didn't know that there were home workers that were actually doing the embroidery on that shirt, but there are, and we want to make sure that as a business we're being responsible. So you know, we're getting called on quite a bit to do that kind of work, which has been um, been really exciting and uh, powerful to to watch that shift in the industry over the last uh, maybe six or seven years or so. And and these days, even it's so rapidly uh, increasing; it's amazing. Um, but that's, I think, you know, how how much responsibility do you go? How far do you take that responsibility? Um, given that you could drive yourself crazy looking at every single input and what, you know, what do you do there? I think that's, that's a big piece. Um, I think another challenge, which it might be particular to, you know, the current landscape of 2020 is there's look, there's some brands that are doing extremely well right now. You know, they're positioned in a particular sector, particular market where they're killing it. There are a lot of brands that are also struggling on the other side. And, and if you're a brand that has been a purpose driven company, um, authentically for a long time and now your revenues are slipping what does that do to those efforts and that groundwork that you've laid over so many years like where are you going to cut you probably are going to cut philanthropy your corporate philanthropy efforts probably maybe your employee engagement initiatives you're going to start really looking at okay what are the what are the cost centers for my business if i'm in a crisis and so you're going to have to make some really really tough decisions as far as how to how to navigate that landscape and Hopefully it's for short-term pain, but doesn't cause long-term damage to either your brand reputation or responsibility, right? Uh, but also to the efforts that you've been trying to grow and support for, for many years. So I, I certainly see that as something that that brands um, are, are undoubtedly struggling with. I think one other challenge is around the speed of information. It's it's an opportunity and a challenge, right? Um, you know, social media is is a huge mouthpiece uh would we have you know school strike for climate change before the internet heck no we would not there was no way that that you know greta thunberg would have the mouthpiece that she has and it's it's amazing that she does right i mean it really is uh, but i do see brands almost always kind of rocking on their heels because it's always crisis management mode 
And so how do you react to all of this fast pace information, accusations, sometimes founded, sometimes unfounded, um, activist participation, where you're still trying to drive your own strategy and not just constantly being reactive because you'll just you're just going to get kicked around. You need to do both to be clear. I mean if if there's a crisis, you absolutely do need to react, but you also need to work on what is what is our purpose as a brand, as a company, as an employee base? Like what are we working towards so that you can really try and focus as much energy and attention in that direction as well. So, with all that in mind, is anyone doing this really well? Do you have an example of a smart campaign you've seen or just smart operational setups that you've seen with a framework that really you think has big potential? There are, yes, yes. The good news is, yes, there are people that are doing this well. (laughs) Otherwise, this would be a very short podcast, I think. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, there are companies out there that from day one have been founded uh, based on purpose. First that comes to mind for me is Patagonia. Mm-hmm. Very, very strong reputation when it comes to environmental and social responsibility. Interesting company, though, because it's one that really, really knows its consumer and they know how far they can take it. Um, and, you know, they are one that is not afraid to be political, which a lot of brands are like, oh, that's maybe where I'm going to draw the line. Um, they, you know, they've had campaigns, I don't, you know, talking about needing to vote people out of office sewn on labels on their, on their clothing. Um, and it's interesting to just see the amount of engagement and activism that that brand has. And, and I think as a result of it, they also get a benefit of a, of a lot of, um, a lot of consumer intention, right? I mean, they were one of the first brands to, to say, don't buy this jacket on black Friday. Like we're not going to have black Friday. Don't buy this coat. They were one of the first brands that I know of to really embrace um, a repair mentality to product. Um, so if you bought a, a coat, they didn't want you to have to buy another coat. They wanted you to come in. If it got ripped, come in and we'll have a repair person, sometimes in, in shop, sometimes you have to send out for it, to repair it for you so that you can wear it again and again and again and again. And eventually it might wear out and then you can donate that scrap fabric and it'll become something else. Very interesting model. I mean, very different than a traditional, you know, buy, buy, buy more, buy more of the same shirt, buy more same coat, you know. Um, so they're, they're one that I, I certainly pay a lot of attention to. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are other companies out there where I can see the hard work that they have and the, the way that they're proceeding with their business operations, exposing weaknesses in their own supply chains, in their own um, admitting to mistakes that they've made, maybe from a, a community engagement perspective and putting in the hard, hard work to engage their workforce and engage their communities and stakeholders to figure out how to do it right. I think that's, you know, I think it's also, it's, it's hard to admit when you haven't done something right. And you know, brands that are willing to do that and say, we screwed this one up. Here's what we're doing to fix it. <clears throat> I think that's, those are the brands that I, I really find interesting as well. I think that in terms of like, we haven't talked about, you know, consumer packaged goods at all. So think about what Unilever did under Paul Pullman in terms of embracing sustainability across a massive, massive company and mm-hmm. to be able to do it so well and see, they they could really quickly see that 
the the purpose driven brands within their family of brands, and they own a lot of brands. If you don't know Unilever, just look them up. They own almost everything. Let's be honest. But to 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 see how the culture of embracing sustainable efforts was able to pervade across the entire organization, essentially, and and successfully almost all the time, is is one that I, I love working through that case and like looking at the history there. And frankly, hearing what Paul Pullman has to say whenever whenever he's speaking, I, I enjoy listening to, to what he has to say. He's a revolutionary in the sense that he took a, a huge company and was able to to pivot it in that direction and do it very well. Um, so I, I have a lot of respect for the work that they've done. Great, great. So those are definitely some some big examples, and I'm 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 fighting with myself right now to kind of dig in further on that, <laughs> particularly the Unilever Unilever example. It just feels like, from a geographical standpoint, a regional standpoint, a governmental standpoint, that EU and UK and those regions they definitely have a, a stronger grasp on the importance of this and maybe maybe that's just an uh, an uninformed perception would you agree or disagree with that I, that there's a little bit of us learning and watching and in some cases being dragged along by what's happening in Europe I would agree I think um Europe has always been maybe a decade that might that might be harsh but I I think maybe a decade ahead of of US thinking around sustainability in general and responsibility in general. And I think that you mentioned government. I think that does go to government regulation as well. Not that long ago, um, I believe it was France, declared that all um, brands operating in France need to be responsible down to the very last mile of their supply chain as a regulation. Like they would they would be legally responsible for that. That's a that's a pretty big shift, and that's certainly not something that's here in the, here in the U.S. now, you know. And and you yes, you see it. I think there's a reason why, um, for a while, all of the sustainable fashion summits were taking place in Europe. Um, now there certainly are some here as well, um, but it's definitely a place where businesses have looked to to see innovation. And I think I think part of it also is that. And look, I mean, I'm half Swedish, so, you know, my apologies, but like the whole Scandinavian philosophy around democratic socialism and and you need to kind of do right and do good and you can do well, but you need to think about the impact of the people around you as a result of doing well. I think that kind of pervades some of the mentality here um, with the CEOs of these companies that they're, they're less concerned. I'm not saying they're not concerned. They are less concerned with extreme shareholder reaction. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I mean, it's happening now in the U S too, which is awesome. And I love to see it that you're getting away from short-term thinking as a CEO, getting away from maybe quarterly reporting to your shareholders, um, so that you have more runway to make investments and then see how they play out. And And thankfully, we haven't talked about shareholders at all, really, or really ESG, but thankfully, the shareholders are also asking those very important questions. And more and more of those shareholders want to see a double bottom line, triple bottom line. They want to understand where does this investment fit into my ESG screen? ESG screening is also getting much more robust and the metrics behind it and the reporting behind it. Um, it's not just marketing anymore. You know, when 
when you have people like um, you know the Bloomberg company making investments in this kind of reporting mechanism and that kind of thing, it it, it shows that these questions are are increasingly being asked at the at the shareholder level, not to mention at the kind of um, finance level. So, you know, issuing d- debt based on sustainability impacted objectives, or you get favorable um, interest rates if you can meet certain social impact or sustainability goals. Very interesting. And, you know, we talked about it before, but like making the business case for it, being able to unlock cheaper capital uh, for your company, that that's a big win for you. Not to mention, you know, great marketing as well, right? It's like, well, you know, we met these awesome sustainability goals. And oh, by the way, the finance guys are really happy because, you know, it's 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 cheaper corporate debt than we were getting before. Um, right. So it's 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 all it's all coming together. Consumers, shareholders, employees, um, the workers themselves, all of it. It's 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 really exciting to watch. All right. So for for everybody who's listening, I hope you've been sold by now that CSR is a place for you to be exploring. <laughs> I hope, but um, not so, Chris. This has been great so far, and not only can you know you're demonstrating your expertise in this, but we're hearing a bit of your passion and I have to say you just slipped in that half Swedish part. We're going <laughs> to come back to that part because that's a part of the story I didn't know just yet. Um, but I wanted to say, you know, not only do you do this work, but you're also teaching this at NYU Stern school of business. So for people who are considering this space or getting into this space, what do you feel is important to impart to the next generation of marketing and comms and, CSR leaders, what, what do they need to know? They need to know that CSR is increasingly becoming a core part of general business strategy, um, that it is really a driver for business, for market share, for attention, for marketing, for PR. Um, it's the place where customers are, I, I believe, are most rapidly starting to ask those very important questions. And what we're seeing, certainly right now, we're seeing people being much more careful with their purchasing. And so as a result of that, they're asking these questions and they're looking for the information. And with everything shifting to a digital interface, essentially, it also gives marketing and branding a, a real opportunity that this is how people are consuming their, their media. Um, and you can now tell a really interesting story about virtually any product on your site. You know, they can't go for an in-store experience right now. Um, hopefully they will be able to again, but they can't do that right now. And so this is an opportunity to really flex your muscles and show what you can do with the information you're getting from those other team members that we referred to before, um, from the CSR folks, from production and sourcing and find out how does this tie back to your purpose as a brand and as a company and what story your message you're trying to tell the consumer about your, your corporate DNA. That's a big piece of it. I think to be successful in, in the CSR space, you kind of need to know a little bit about everything, um, which is why I find it so interesting. You need to know about corporate finance because you need to be able to make those business arguments. You need to know about business strategy because you need to understand what your competitor reaction is going to be, how you can position a new project within your firm. You need to know about corporate politics, so much corporate politics, right? Because often these are 
new programs that are are getting off the ground or new way, at least new ways of thinking about existing work. Um, clearly, you need to know about marketing and branding. Um, you need to understand what makes the other members of your cross-functional team tick. How are they incentivized for performance? Um, and really understand where you can kind of flex some of that or how you can provide opportunities for say the merchandiser. It's like, I know this is going to be less margin than you want over here. We're going to give you a win on this thing over here. Right. Or it might be less margin, but all the studies show that the consumer interest in this product is off the hook. So, um, so those types of things, I mean, it really, it's a lot about strategy. It's a lot about, um, <laughs> manipulating people to do the right thing. I guess uh, is maybe a good way of putting it. But also it, it's about being able to analyze the data and really understand when you're looking at a supply chain map, where are the weak links? What are you not seeing? How are you? How can you get that information? Who do you need to partner with if there are issues, say, in, in your supply chain? Um, so they're, they're, it's rife with opportunity, um, depending on what your interest is, frankly. So we're at this point in the podcast where I, I, I like to dig into the person and a little bit about their backstory. So this is where the half Swedish part comes back in. <laughs> Get ready. But I, on a serious note, I find that whenever I come across a legit CSR executive, there's an interesting backstory because the details that point to who that person is also points to what drives them and, and how they've decided to kind of spend their time on this in this world. Mm. So can we spend some time learning a little bit more about who Chris is and maybe getting to what drives him? So we will continue to refer to you in third person. <laughs> Great. That makes me even more comfortable. Thanks, James. <laughs> so so uh, what, what's your hometown? My hometown. Well, I currently live in Westchester County. Um, I live in Katona, New York. Lovely kind of commuter town. Uh, vibrant kind of culture and art scene. Um, oddly enough, I, I grew up close to here. I, I grew up um, in, in just maybe 20 minutes away from where I live now. I never thought I would be back here. I never did. I I spent a bunch of my childhood in the Westchester County area. We moved away. We moved around uh, a little bit. I moved away to Baltimore and then went off to college. And I never thought I'd be back in the New York area, let alone uh, living not that far from where I grew up. So that's where I am now. It's funny how life works sometimes. Right. Sometimes it circles back. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned you were half Swedish. What's the other half? So my, my mom um, is first generation. Um, both her parents were, were Swedish. Um, my father is half Dutch and half German, and he immigrated um, to the U.S. when he was, uh, I think, in his late 20s. Okay. So okay. hardy Northern European stock. <laughs> <laughs> so if you had to pick an intro song that played any time you entered a room, what song would it be? That's a good one. I think it would probably be uh, something by Rush. Spirit of Radio, I think, would be the song. Okay. What's your favorite word? Impact. I love that word. Okay. What's your least favorite word? Failure. Even some heavy hitters. <laughs> what, what sound do you love? What sound do I love? Yeah. Uh, the sound of my children's laughter. Okay. What sound do you hate? The sound of their tears. What is the last podcast you listened to? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I feel like I was on this on this kind of beat of listening to this so much new stuff. I'm generally not a podcast listener, I have to say, but there's so many interesting ones out there. 
I'm trying to remember what the last one was. And frankly, I, I, I can't even remember. I'm not like that podcast subscriber guy, although I will subscribe to yours, I will say. Um, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I don't know what it was. It was on, um, it was on racial inequality um, and, and justice. So fascinating. Obviously, a, a hot topic and a super important one. But I can't remember who, who led it. Is there an outlet or book that you would recommend we read? There are a couple. As far as outlets, there's one place where I really like to get information. It's a, it's a blog called Reconsidered. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially, it's put together by someone I, I really respect a lot. And she compiles a lot of really interesting information and, and news about various aspects of social impact and sustainability. And, and it always has a lot of interesting reading. So I, I follow that quite a bit. But in terms of books, I would recommend Cradle to Cradle. It was written probably 20 years ago, but it is a, a very powerful book and it really explains kind of circular economy thinking. Um, I like Conscious Capitalism. Um, it's another book that I, I like. And in terms of the work that I do and the impact that I'm trying to make, I really turn to a book called Poor Economics um, quite a bit by Duflo and Banchery. And they both won a Nobel Prize for their work, not for that book, but for their work. And it's essentially bottom of the pyramid economy and how what makes it tick, how it works, who's in it, what are they doing, what are their struggles. It's a, it's a really good read, a powerful one, uh, and one that has really kind of shaped my thinking for sure. Okay. So what profession other than yours would you like to attempt? I would say cooking to be a professional chef, except that the hours are tough, man. That is a, it's a tough line of work. I do love to cook. And I guess if I could pick my own hours, I would say that. (laughs) Okay. Okay. What profession would you avoid completely? Ballroom dancing. What uh, motivates you to do the work you do now? The reason I, I got into the work that I do is, it, it, I mean, it, it's really for what my favorite word is. It, it's about impact and it's about um, being at the intersection of business and impact, which I, I know is kind of a, a phrase that's used a lot. But to be able to work with companies and brands on their impact-related journey and to, for me, I get the benefit of really going down to the last mile and seeing how it impacts the, the worker in their home or small workshop. And, and I find that incredibly rewarding. And that's, that's why I do what I do. That's why I wake up every day. Amazing. Where's the last place you traveled? Hmm. Um, where's the last place I traveled? I, I mean, for my job, I, I used to travel quite a bit. Um, obviously in all, all kind of four corners of the world. Last kind of extensive trip I took was probably to the continent of, of Africa. I went to Eswatini, which was formerly called Swaziland, um, and Zambia, both on the same trip. They're obviously not that close to each other, but I think that was probably the, the last significant trip I took before things kind of quieted down significantly for us here. Okay. Where would you love to go next? I would love, well, I would love to be traveling around the U.S., certainly, um, with my kids in tow. And we've been learning a lot about the country during this this sort of time where nobody can travel. I've never been to the Grand Canyon. I would love to go there with them and, and really see that in person. That would probably be where I would go next if I could. Are you going to road trip it? 
we were we were talking about it actually we might uh we still might that's a long time in the car with two little kids though so i don't know that's a that's that's either brave or stupid i don't know which but it would be fun it would be fun but we'll see i I, i've not been to the grand canyon but i went almost um it was kind of like a on the whim thing so the funny part is we went to vegas sans kids and I realized that you could take a helicopter flight from Vegas over the canyon. Whoa. Almost did it. And then just line up time-wise. So, yeah, I'm pretty sure that that's not what people do on a way when they're in Vegas. <laughs> not comes up, but that's what I almost did. That's great. If heaven exists, what would you like God to say to you when you arrive at the pearly gates? That I made a difference. Mm. Excellent. Well, thank you, Chris. Now, we want you to have one final word here. So if you could leave our listeners with one quick point on CSR or ethical manufacturing, responsible sourcing, you pick. What would that point be? What advice would you give them, be it a strategy or a tactic, something that will help them be better partners in the space? I would say don't be afraid to ask the questions, whether it's as a consumer um, and thinking about the product you're about to buy and the brand that you're buying it from, whether it's working within a company or a firm, um, what your company is doing, how could it do it better? How could you be uh, an advocate for that work in, in your role within that firm? Just don't be afraid to ask those questions and, and to speak up that if it's something you're interested in, you're willing to, to roll up your sleeves and get to work because that's what, that's what a lot of companies are looking for. Um, they're looking to have people that help them develop those solutions. And a lot of brands these days are looking for the customers that are asking those very important questions. So don't be afraid. And with that, we'll close this episode. So thank you so much for joining us, Chris. My pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks. And this is one quick point. 